when I when I was a young when I was a lot younger, um, I used to watch a lot of movies uh, with my mother. Fortunately, in those days, none of them had subtitles, so I was quite happy. Uh, usually on a Friday night, a Friday night, and in, in uh, my house when I was a child, my older brother and father went out to scouts. My younger brothers were put into bed early, and I got to watch movies with my mother to keep her company. Um, most of the music, most of the movies were musicals, uh, so I had a good upbringing. A lot of uh, a lot of musicals, uh, but I remember this one mu- movie that wasn't a musical. It was called The Sound Barrier. It's a movie that was made in 1952. It was black and white. Uh, basically, we only had a black and white TV, so it didn't really matter what colour it was. Uh, basically. It was a fictional movie about breaking through the sound barrier in a jet plane. The main thrust of the film was around what happened every time, every time they got close to the mark. Of course, they lost control and the jet crashed. Finally, finally, after many goes, the pilot worked out that if he reversed the use of the control stick, so instead of pulling back to go up, he pushed forward, he regained control of the plane and broke through the sound barrier. Like I said, it's a fictional film. Um, if you do the age uh, Friday, a Thursday quiz, as I often do, you will know that it was Chuck Yeager who broke the sound barrier, was one of the answers to the questions on Thursday's quiz. But I do remember this story well. I suppose because it was a movie about breaking the usual rules and still coming out okay. Some might say that's a theme that I've tried to model my life on and probably partly true. Well, it was a great story and I'm going to suggest that it's a great illustration of what Jesus is doing with our reading this morning. He's basically taking over the controls and making them work backwards. The image I had in mind when I was writing this was that Jesus is talking to the people of, taking the people of God, not through the Red Sea, not through the desert, but through the sound barrier. And that's going to require a change of control. As we also know, that when something does in fact break the sound barrier, there is a large boom. Funny enough, I'm just going to get distracted, which I I haven't done often. Um, Georgie Walters was telling us that she's been through the sound barrier twice uh, in the Concord. And in fact, uh, when she broke the sound barrier in the Concord, there was a loud boom as they broke the sound barrier. Well, I'm pretty sure that those around Jesus may well have said what he had to say to them in our reading had a similar effect. The reading this morning is the start of what's known as the Sermon on the Mount, which runs through chapters 5, 6 and 7. Never complain about how long somebody's sermons are. And set out the themes, the main themes of Jesus' public statements. I've heard in the past people say 
just how much better we would be if we simply obeyed this teaching. But if we think that Jesus is simply telling people how to live, then probably we are missing the point. To say that Jesus is a good teacher is to misunderstand him. If Jesus was simply teaching world truths, he'd be wrong, wouldn't he? I mean, mourners aren't often comforted. The meek don't inherit the earth. Those who long for justice often keep on longing. What Jesus is doing is making an announcement. It is not his, his philosophical analysis of the world. It is what is about to happen. It is good news, gospel news, not good advice. As we heard last week, just prior to this reading, Jesus has just called his first disciples in chapter 4, verse 8, in Peter and Andrew and then James and John. So in a sense, what we have here is is in part saying that God is at work in a fresh way and this is what it looks like. Remember the Jewish people's lives were full of rules. So Jesus is saying things are changing. Even today, we think good news consists of success, wealth, long life or victory. Jesus' news is for the humble the poor, the mourners, the peacemakers. The word blessed could also be translated to wonderful news. Something you need to know about Matthew, though, his gospel is written mainly for a Jewish audience. So what Matthew is doing here is showing his audience how Jesus is setting a new covenant with the people of God. In Deuteronomy, the people of God went through the wilderness and arrived at the border of the promised land and God gave them a solemn covenant. He listed blessings and curses. You can read them in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Matthew, in his earlier chapters, also recorded how Jesus came out of Egypt through the water, the water of his baptism by John, into the wilderness and into the land of promise. So what we have here is Matthew's version of a new covenant. Jesus is turning their worldview upside down. Jesus is ushering in a new order, a new way of thinking. Well, actually, it's not all that new if you think about it. The old one was supposed to suffice, but it got so convoluted and had so many meanings attached to it that Jesus had to simplify things. There is, of course, a temptation to think that the Beatitudes are rules or conditions, conditions for being blessed, or maybe even how to get into heaven. Well, They aren't that at all. They are not about building up, accomplishing or acquiring. They're about letting go, surrendering and living with a vulnerable and open heart. That doesn't mean 
we run away or back down or isolate ourselves from the realities of our world and our life, it means we engage them in a different way, Jesus' way. The Beatitudes teach us to trust God more than the external circumstances of our lives. They invite dependence on God rather than self-reliance. In today's world, that sounds like weakness. Weakness and foolishness. Well, that's what they have sounded like right through every age. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. God chose what is foolish to to shame the wise and what is weak to shame the strong. The Beatitudes are nothing less than the way of the cross. The fullest explanation of a Beatitudal life is seen in Jesus' crucifixion. If we live the Beatitudes, they will take us to the cross. In the trauma and setbacks of life, we discover that we cannot do life by ourselves. As we admit our need of God, we find purity of heart. The arrogance of self-sufficiency gives way to meekness. We realize that all we have and all we are is from God and we begin to know ourselves as poor in spirit. Our own misfortunes awaken and connect us to the pain of the world for which we cannot help. But all we can do is mourn. We think less about ourselves and become merciful to others. We have nowhere else to go until we turn our gaze back to God. The longer we gaze at God, the more the more we hunger and thirst for righteousness of God, for God's life. And we become peacemakers, reconciling ourselves firstly with God and then with our neighbours. This is the life for which Christ's disciples are being called to, a life of righteousness, a life for which Christ died and rose again. The Beatitudes are not so much about what we do, our actions, but about how we do it, our being. They are less about actions and more about relationships. To live the Beatitudes is to live a life of reckless exuberance, self-abandonment, to God and our neighbour. It may just well be called love. The only reason we can do that is because we know and trust ourselves to have already been blessed by God. We live the Beatitudes as a response to God's blessing us. That is the way of Christ. That is not only the way forward through this life, 
it is the way to life. It is the crashing through the sound barrier. It is turning the world upside down. And it is bringing back the boom of Jesus in our lives in such a way people take notice. So this week, if I'm going to leave you with anything, I'm going to leave you with this.